well. Hey everyone, go ahead and grab a seat if you would. Welcome. Welcome. So good to see you all here and be together another Sunday. My name's Matt. I'm one of the pastors here. If I haven't had a chance to meet you, I would love to get to meet you and get to know you. I'm glad that you're with us at FBC, and I want to uh, invite you to open your Bible with me to the book of Exodus chapter 2. Again, Exodus chapter 2. If you need a Bible, there are some on the seats in front of you. Feel free to grab one and use that. Even take that home with you as a gift from us if you don't have a Bible. But join me in Exodus chapter 2, verse 11. And whether it's in a hard copy of a Bible or on your phone or your iPad or some kind of device, however you need to get there and follow along, please join me there. And we're going to get right to it today and read the first few verses together. Sound good? Exodus 2, verse 11 says this. One day, after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Looking this way and that, and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for revealing yourself to us, showing us who you are in your word. And we pray now as we study your word together that you would speak, help us hear from you, help us understand who you are and what you desire for us this morning. Uh, we give you this time and just ask you to move freely here, remove distractions from our hearts and minds, help us again hear your voice. We're so dependent upon you, Lord to understand your word. So would you help us and guide us? We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, maybe you've heard the story of a promising young junior executive at IBM who got involved with a sort of risky business venture for the company and ended up losing $10 million for the company. The founder of the company called him into his office. The founder's name was Tom Watson, IBM's founder, he calls this young executive into his office who had just lost the company $10 million. And as you can imagine, the young professional was quite nervous about this meeting, quite anxious, and he kind of nervously blurts out, well, I guess you want my resignation. And Tom, the founder of IBM, said, you can't be serious. We just spent $10 million educating you. I'm not going to let that go to waste. See, the founder of, of IBM saw that failure and flaws were not necessarily a reason to cut ties with this employee, but this young executive would actually learn and grow and still be used by IBM. Thankfully, friends, the good news is that God takes the same approach with us, doesn't he? We fail. We are deeply flawed, and God does not just cut ties with us. Even when we fail in pretty large, visible ways, God still, in his grace, chooses to use us and accomplish his plans and purposes in the world through us as his people. And we're going to see that on display with Moses in chapter 2 of Exodus this morning, which is really important for us to see because sometimes when we think about 
these heroes of the faith, these men and women in the Bible that are mightily used by God, Moses and Abraham and the Apostle Peter and others, at first glance we can think or maybe assume that, well, they must have had things pretty well put together in order to be used by God. They must have been really flawless people, really godly people. And yet we see over and over again in Scripture, these heroes of the faith are so deeply flawed and, and sin and fall short in so many different ways. And yet God continues to use them to be gracious to them, to redeem them, and bring about his purposes through them. Last week we saw Moses, his birth and his miraculous protection while he was a child. He was born a Hebrew and yet raised in Pharaoh's court, in Pharaoh's household. He was Egyptian by lifestyle, by education, had all the training and wisdom of Egypt at his fingertips. But we see in the text today, as Moses grows older, there's sort of an identity crisis going on in his heart, right? Look at verse 11. One day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and he watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew and it says one of his own people. And so here we see Moses has grown, this prince of Egypt. He goes out to see what life was like for the Hebrews, right? If you remember chapter 1 of the book of Exodus, the Israelites, the Hebrews, God's people were living in Egypt, but they were in slavery. And Pharaoh was oppressing them and, and forcing them into hard, dreary labor, and Moses goes out to see this. And in the original language, in the Hebrew here, it's not that he just went and kind of glanced over and took a real passive look at things that were going on. The, the verb here really brings with it the idea of being moved by what he saw. His, his emotions were stirred as he looked upon the suffering of his people. And it seems like for Moses, there's this growing identification with the people of Israel, right? Twice in verse 11, it says that these are his own people. These are his own people. Hebrews 11 in the New Testament speaks of this. It's going to be up on the screen. Verse 24 of Hebrews 11 says, By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. And so Moses is having this realization that he belongs with the people of God. He's a Hebrew. He's not an Egyptian. And he's choosing to identify with the Israelites, even in their suffering, even in their struggles. And that's a good thing. And yet we see what takes place next. In verse 11, he sees this Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people, and he looks this way and that, and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Moses looks around to see if anyone's watching. He doesn't see anyone, doesn't think anyone's going to find out. He kills the Egyptian and hides him in the sand. And so we're left to think, what do we make of this, right? How do we interpret this act? Because many throughout history have looked at Moses here, murdering the Egyptian, and said 
that he's justified in doing what he did. Maybe he was protecting this person. Maybe he was acting as God's uh, agent of divine justice, a deliverer that he one day would become in an even greater way as the Exodus unfolds. And these aren't just like fringe people who would say this. We have guys like uh, John Calvin and Martin Luther, kind of big names in church history saying, hey, what he did essentially was, was good and justified. But there's another group of voices throughout church history, including St. Augustine and many scholars and commentators today that would look at what Moses did and say, actually, no, this is not good. He murdered an Egyptian. And sure, maybe he was motivated by compassion. He was motivated by a sense of justice. That's why he lashed out in this way. But he went too far. He, he took matters into his own hands. Even though maybe there were the right motivations, he did something he should not have done. He attempted to bring deliverance, to bring rescue of sorts to his people, but not God's way. He did it his own way. And this is the camp that I fall into. I don't think that what Moses did here was right and justified. And I think that we see this as the narrative plays out. Look how it happens in verse 13. It says, The next day... Moses went out and saw two Hebrews fighting, two of his own people now, and he asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? And then Moses was afraid and thought, what I did must have become known. Moses realizes the word is out about what he's done. Someone knows Maybe many people know. And so as he steps into this fight between Hebrew brothers and attempts to mediate, one of them knows what he has done. He says, you've killed an Egyptian. And he asks Moses this telling question. This is a really important question in the text. He says, who appointed you ruler and judge over us? Who gave you any kind of authority to mediate our business or to do what you did yesterday? with the Egyptian? What's the answer to that question? No one. No one has given Moses this authority. No one has given Moses this role, this power, as judge, as ruler over his people. Remember, God hasn't called Moses yet. We don't see until chapter 3 that God calls Moses to be a deliverer and a rescuer. And so here we are in chapter 2, and Moses, instead of waiting on God, is taking things into his own hands. Again, maybe Moses has some sense, again, of, of growing identification with the people of Israel and slavery. Maybe he even has some sense that, wow, God has uniquely positioned me to be able to do something about this. Maybe he even senses that God's going to use him in a special way to bring freedom to the people. We don't know exactly, but possibly something like that was going on in Moses' heart. But still, he takes things into his own hands. He takes things too far. Instead of waiting on God's timing and God's ways, he has praiseworthy motives, a heart of compassion, a heart for justice, and yet he oversteps his role. And we can learn from Moses today because sometimes we're tempted to be like him. Rather than trusting in God's timing and God's ways, we want to take things into our own hands, don't we? and do things our way. Tim Keller has said that worry 
is not believing God will get it right. And bitterness is believing that God got it wrong. And worry is not believing God will get it right. And bitterness is believing God got it wrong. And both of those things can lead us to take things into our own hands, right? If we're bitter about the past, God has not held up his end of the bargain. God hasn't done what we thought he was supposed to do. And so we're going to act now. We're going to do things our way. Or if we worry that God's not going to come through for us in some way, God's not going to do what he said he will do, so I'm going to have to take things into my own hands and do things my own way. And so instead of patiently trusting God, we hurry, we get pushy, we rush things, we seek to control things and situations and even people. Instead of being gentle, we use force. Instead of being kind and gracious, we are harsh and unforgiving. And really, this attitude is at the heart of any, any sin, right? Any sin that we step into, that we act on, is essentially saying, I want to do things my way, and I don't really care what God says about it. I want to do this. That's the essence of sin. And maybe we see this in, in your own life in a number of different ways. Maybe it's at work. Maybe your boss you don't think is very competent, they're not running things very well, the company, and so you kind of start to act out or take charge and do things that you really shouldn't do because you think you could do a better job rather than waiting and trusting the leadership there. Maybe you see this in, in your home. You, you so badly maybe want your spouse to change in a certain way or you want your, your kids to turn out a certain way that you start to maybe get a little bit pushy, start pushing the issue, start trying to control outcomes out of fear. And you say, you know what? God's ways of love and patience and grace and trust are not really working here. Okay, so I need to implement some other tactics that are going to get the job done for my family, my spouse, my kids, whatever it might be. And honestly, I've seen this in, in my own marriage, how I've fallen into this mindset. I can be opinionated. I can be a fairly strong-willed sort of person. And sometimes with, with Amber, with my, my wife, I can be unnecessarily pushy or, or rush things, especially when we disagree about maybe a point of theology. We don't see eye to eye or maybe a, a situation in our life. We don't see eye to eye rather than graciously listening to her, trusting her relationship with the Lord and how she's seeking his voice in her life. I can be kind of pushy and need to control outcomes and kind of be a little bit overbearing with her rather than just giving her the space to process, to seek God, to, to investigate things on her own. And so I'm sometimes guilty of taking things into my own hands and wanting to control and being a little bit pushy rather than patient and gracious and trusting the Lord. For Moses, this leads to exile. Right? You see in verse 15, Pharaoh hears of what happened. Pharaoh tries to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. And so just think about this picture of Moses now. Where do we find Moses? He's rejected by the Egyptians, the people who raised him. Pharaoh now wants to kill him. But he's also rejected by the Hebrews, right? His people by birth. They're like, who are you? Trying to take some authority over us? Get out of here. Like, you're we don't need you. We don't want you. And so the Egyptians reject him. The Israelites reject him. And now he's out in the wilderness, living in Midian, sitting down by 
a well. And so the story of Moses, as we reflect on it this morning, is both a warning for us and an encouragement. It's a warning because of what we just talked about. He takes things into his own hands, and he shouldn't have done that. And so we should see we should not do that either. We should trust the Lord and not be like Moses in that way. But the story of Moses is also an encouragement because we see that as, as dark as things look for Moses, as messy and complicated and painful as this situation must be for him, he was impulsive and he was angry and he took things into his own hands and he committed murder even, he is still the one that God will use to rescue the people of Israel. He is still the leader that God will raise up to lead the people out of slavery in Egypt. So God is not done with Moses. God is still at work in his life. God still has plans for Moses. And so if God isn't done with Moses, it means that God's not done with you. And God's not done with me. That we can trust and see that there's nothing in our story, in our past, that's so dark or so complicated that God cannot bring redemption to, that God cannot use. And this reminds us of the very gospel message itself that we are saved by God through faith in Jesus Christ. It's because of God's grace that we are saved and reconciled to him. It's a gift. We don't earn it. We don't work for it. God isn't pleased with us because of our, our perfect moral record or our good behavior, our checklist that we fill out completely and turn into him. That's not what earns us God's favor. It's God's grace that we receive by faith. So God's love for us is not based on our performance. And if we slip up now or in the future, it doesn't mean that we are therefore cut off and not belonging to the household of God. No, God still works in our lives and is patient by his grace. Now, for Moses, again, this leads him into the wilderness. And we see the story continue for him in verse 16, after, excuse me, 15, when Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses. Moses fled from Pharaoh, went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. Now, verse 16, now a priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and fill the troughs to water their father's flock. Some shepherds came along and drove them away, but Moses got up and came to their rescue and watered their flock. When the girls returned to Ruel, their father, he asked them, why have you returned so early today? And they answered, an Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. And where is he? Ruel asked his daughters. Why did you leave him? Invite him to have something to eat. And so Moses agreed to stay with the man who gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. And Zipporah gave birth to a son, and Moses named him Gershom, saying, I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. So Moses, on the run, ends up out in Midian, this sort of wilderness land to the east of Egypt, and he ends up at a well, which would be a common place in the ancient world to come across people and to seek refuge of some kind. And it appears that these seven daughters of the high priest of Midian are there at the well. This priest of Midian here is named Ruel. Later we see his name is Jethro, so it appears that he would have two names, which isn't entirely uncommon in the ancient world. And these girls, it appears, are bullied 
by the shepherds nearby, right? And Moses in verse 17 has to come to their rescue. Maybe they were being pushed out of the way, not allowed to draw water by these other men, but Moses defends them. And so we still see the heart for justice within Moses. We still see his desire to defend the weak. And this time he does great good and protects these women. And the girls go home and tell their father. He wonders in verse 18, why are you home so early? Makes it seem like this was a common occurrence that they would be bullied or pushed around or have difficulty drawing water. And they tell him, well, this Egyptian rescued us. He even watered the flock for us, which would be a a women's job back then. But Moses does this job for them. He serves them. He does their labor. And so Ruel is like, where is this guy? I mean, clearly this is marriage material, ladies, right? He's protecting you. He's serving you. He's doing some of your tasks around watering the flock for you. Go and get this guy. We got to feed him a meal and, and see what happens. And so they go and get him. And he he shows up and he marries one of the daughters, Zipporah, and they have a son. And now Moses is living out in the wilderness and he has a family. And in chapter 3, and a few verses later, we're going to see he becomes a shepherd. He's watching over the sheep of Jethro, his father-in-law. And that's where the story of Exodus sort of leaves us until God calls Moses in chapter 3 at the burning bush. And so we are left to kind of reflect on this season of Moses' life where he's out in the wilderness. He's a family man now. He's a shepherd living in Midian. And it's interesting because the text doesn't give us a lot of clear statements about what was going on in Moses' life at this point. The text doesn't give us a lot of clear value judgments about was it good that he was out in the wilderness or what was God teaching him out in the wilderness? It doesn't say clearly like, and after 10 years in the wilderness, Moses learned X, Y, and Z. And it was really neat and tidy. The, The text doesn't tell us. And so we have to reflect and think about what might this season of life looked like for Moses in the wilderness. And the first thing we should realize is that this is a long season of life. Acts will tell us in the New Testament that Moses was 40 when he left Egypt and he was 80 when God calls him in chapter 3, which means these few short verses here at the end of chapter 2 cover 40 years. Decades are passing in these short verses here. This is a long period of time, verse 23 will even tell us. Famous pastor D.L. Moody once said this about Moses. He said, Moses spent his first 40 years thinking he was somebody. He spent his second 40 years learning he was a nobody. He spent his third 40 years discovering what God can do with a nobody. (laughs) And so it's here, these second 40 years of his life that we're looking at, where Moses is in the wilderness, he's in obscurity, raising children, taking care of sheep, spending time with his wife and family. And in these years, God is teaching Moses something. God in some way is preparing Moses for what was to come in his life. Anyone here ever been on a a wilderness retreat? Maybe go camping for a few days, for a week or two. You get somewhere out of cell phone reception. You get to turn down the noise in your life. You're out in the wilderness, essentially. 
I don't do this very often. I love the great indoors. I'm not a big outdoorsman. But when that happens in my life, when I've been in those places, isn't it amazing how you're able to hear from God in a different way? Again, all the other voices, all the noise, all the busyness of the rest of your life seems to slow down and get quiet. And, and God speaks. It's not that he doesn't speak in our normal lives, but sometimes we're more able to listen and to hear when we're out of our element like that. It can be refreshing. And so this is where Moses is, out in the wilderness. And God is at work in his life in sort of the ordinary things. When he's raising his kids, he has a family tending to sheep. He probably has a lot of time on his hands to, I don't know, throw a frisbee around and gaze at the stars and dream and, and listen to what God might have to say to him. And if we're honest, if I'm honest, this season of life for Moses, it's kind of difficult for me to wrap my head around. Even though in, in scripture, God does some really important stuff in the wilderness, right? We see that as a, a repeated theme throughout scripture. The people of, people of Israel later will be wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. They are waiting for the promised land, and they still have some growing, some learning to do before they enter, and God's working in their lives. We see in the New Testament, Jesus is drawn out into the wilderness, led by the Spirit, where he confronts Satan and temptation and overcomes Satan in that moment. But God's doing something special there in the wilderness. And we see this elsewhere in Scripture, that the wilderness is a place where people meet God, where God prepares his servants. And again, that's hard for us to wrap our minds around because for us, again, life today is so often removed from wilderness experiences. Right? The whole idea of cities and suburbs is that we have amenities and everything that we need close by, food and water and gas stations and indoor plumbing and hot showers. And we don't get lost wandering in the woods much anymore, do we? Right? We have GPS on our phones. We have maps. We almost always know where we are. Like we very rarely get completely lost. But even just a hundred years ago, people were more used to getting lost. They would add days onto their trip, sometimes having to reroute and redirect and kind of camp out in the woods for a little bit before they found their way back. That wasn't entirely uncommon. And for people, there was just a greater patience for the wilderness, a greater understanding of getting lost. Whereas today, because of our technology and the pace of life, we've just kind of eradicated a lot of that from our life. And it's not that that's always a bad thing, but sometimes what God wants to do is, is draw us out of some of those known, comfortable places so that he can teach us something new about himself, so that we could hear his voice in a way that we haven't before. And so for us, the, the wilderness today, speaking figuratively, in our spiritual lives often these seasons where maybe we feel lost or it feels like life has just taken a huge detour that we didn't expect. Maybe we didn't even want this huge detour in life. And now we're not entirely sure where we are. We're not entirely sure what's next. We're not entirely sure what God is doing or what our, our future holds with him, how God is leading us. And we have to wait on the Lord. And sometimes that takes a long time. But I want us to consider, if that's, if that's where you are today, 
feeling lost, feeling like your, your life is just in this massive detour that you're not entirely sure what God is doing, I want us to consider that God is still at work in your life. God's preparing your heart. God's drawing you close to him, even when we can't see it. And again, this is hard for us. We talked about this a little bit last week, how we're such a, an instant culture, like a microwave culture. We want things quick and overnight and develop soon. And we see, I remember years ago, I think I've shared this with you before, but I heard a speaker, a teacher sharing how God develops us and grows us as people much like photos. And the illustration went like this, saying, we today are used to Instagram, Snapchat, or like everyone has a camera on their phone. And you can take a picture and you can see it right away, right? And you're like, delete this one, delete, no, take another one, no, no, delete it, take another one, right? And we can just get it to where we want it quickly. We can see what it's like. We can even post it online really quickly. But it wasn't always that way, right? If you're old enough to remember, you used to have to get film developed. So you would take pictures and you couldn't see them right away. You'd have to wait for a while before the film would get developed and then you'd get the pictures and then you'd see, oh, did these turn out? Or, oh, my, my, my hand was in front of the flash or whatever it is. This didn't turn out great or some of these did. And you, just, you hope that the pictures worked out, but you won't know for a while. And what people would have to do with those pictures when they were developed, they'd be in a dark room, right? And the pictures, the photos would, would make their way through these, these trays of chemicals and they would be processed and developed and prepared so that eventually when they came out into the light, they wouldn't be ruined. They would be seen. They would be quality pictures. But we don't have a concept for that. We just say instant, take a photo and we see it. But often God works in the same way that we used to develop old photos. He takes the long route with us. He develops our character and our heart in a, in a dark room and moves us through a process, and sometimes it's uncomfortable, and sometimes it takes a while, and sometimes we can't exactly see what God is doing, but he's developing us, and he's working in our lives, and maybe there's something in the future that he has for us, something he's called you to, a situation he wants you to step into, a role he wants you to assume of some kind, but you're not ready for it right now. And, and a quick digital picture is not going to do the trick, but God's taking the slow, steady, pace of development in your heart, forming you, shaping you into someone who knows him, who loves him, and maybe you're serving him in obscurity. Maybe you're serving him in a difficult place, but God is at work. And Exodus 2 and 3 can be really encouraging because it reminds us that God will find you when it's your time for his calling, right? Because what do we see in Exodus 3? God shows up after 40 years of Moses in the wilderness. God shows up in a burning bush and is like, Moses, it's time to go. Let's go do this thing, right? Moses wasn't like out building his brand, like self-promoting. I'm a, I'm a great rescuer. He's got like a really big Twitter following about like future rescuer. I'm doing great things. And I was like, oh, this Moses, he's like, he's going to be a really great leader one day. No, he's just doing his thing and God shows up and calls him. So wherever you are, God knows where you are. God will find you. You don't have to worry about, are you going to miss out on your calling in some way, right? Like God knows what he has for you ahead and he will lead you to it. And so we look at Moses in the wilderness and what if we learned to view the wilderness, the dry times, the uncertain times, these 
difficult times as maybe special moments where God is working in our lives, where God is teaching us something about himself, drawing us closer to him, even if we can't see it. That's what he's doing with Moses. We see this extended introduction to Moses in the book of Exodus kind of wraps up at the end of chapter 2 in verse 23. It says, During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. Verse 24, God heard their groaning. He remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. So God's people still in slavery in Egypt are crying out. And what does the text tell us? It says, verse 24, God hears. It says, verse 24, God remembered his covenant, his promises to them. He, he looks in verse 25, and he was concerned, or more literally it says he knew. So he hears, he remembers, he sees, he knows. So God is not distant, right? The text is over and over again, driving home the point. God is aware. God is present. God is at work. God sees. God will come to save them. And we see as the story of Exodus rolls out, that is true. God steps into human history and he rescues his people out of slavery in Egypt and he leads them to worship him in freedom in the promised land one day. And so we see that this is true of the people of Israel coming out of ancient Egypt. And it's true of us today for all who trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. There's this reality that God comes to rescue us. And he came into the world in the person of Jesus Christ to live a righteous life that we could not live, to die a death that we deserve, to save us from sin and death, so that if we trust in him and we repent, we turn from our sins and place our faith in Jesus, we will be saved, forgiven, adopted into God's family, cleansed within, given new hearts, given the spirit of God within us, all the promise, promises of God being fulfilled in Christ. And so we've, we've said this before, each week I think, and I think we're going to keep talking about this pretty much every week of Exodus, how the story of Exodus is not just about ancient Egypt. It's not just about the people of Israel living in Egypt however many millennia ago. The story of Exodus points us to the bigger story that God is telling, the bigger story about Jesus. And what we see God doing for the people of Israel in Exodus is what God has done for his people who put their faith in Jesus. And so there's an invitation here for, for each of us to trust in Jesus. Believe the gospel. That you've been saved from your sin. You put your faith in him. If we failed, like Moses, this text reminds us there is grace. If we feel lost in the wilderness, like Moses, this text reminds us that God is present with us and at work. And if we're wondering where God is and we're crying out like the people of Israel in slavery, we can remember that God sees and hears and remembers his promises and he knows and he will come 
and save us. And he has done this in Jesus. Let's pray together. God, we thank you that you are our rescuer. You are our deliverer. You've taken us out of Egypt. You've brought us out of slavery to sin and death. You've given us freedom in your son, Jesus. So we praise you that you have conquered. You have been victorious over sin and death. You are our hero and our savior. And Jesus, you are our king. And so we look to you. We thank you for your grace, your grace that is there for us when we fail, your presence that is there with us even in uncertain times. God, we thank you for who you are and we celebrate you today, Jesus. In your name we pray, amen. Amen.